before we turn to the scripture, there's some exciting things happening. Adam was scheduled to present that, but that's all right. It'll be equally good downstairs. That's just exciting. And some other good things are coming up. Mark this down. It'll start showing in the bulletin. But September the 8th, catechism starts again for all children downstairs. And, of course, the youth will be downstairs, teens, or perhaps up here, and adults up here. So that's September 8th. And then the second Sunday of September, September 12th, Sunday school starts again. Praise God. And we've got scheduling for nursery all the way up. So what we need from you, here's the threat. You all get these phone calls about warranty on your car, right? Constant. Heather's going to start making 20 phone calls per family until you sign up on the church app. (laughs) No, but please let us know. Because Sunday school, Lori has done a tremendous job. I was going to let her announce that. But Mark's 65th today. So happy birthday to Mark Plucker. But uh, we're excited, excited. Sunday school will begin again. That will take place right after church. We've got classroom space. And praise God. Thank you. Because those two ministry pathways, venues could not take place without you and to the praise of our God. Amen. Take your Bible. Turn with me to John chapter 16. And let's stand for the reading of the first 11 verses. That's as far as we'll get today. John 16, 1 through 11. The word of God. These things I have spoken to you that you may be kept from stumbling. They will make you outcast from synagogues. But an hour is coming for everyone who kills you to think he is offering service to God. And these things they will do because they have not known the Father or me. But these things I have spoken to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told you of them. And these things I did not say to you at the beginning because I was with you. But now I am going to him who sent me and none of you ask me, where are you going? But because I've said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. But I tell you the truth, it it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper shall not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And he, when he comes, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. And concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father, and you no longer behold me. And concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world has been judged. 
Let's pray. Blessed and merciful Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, joyfully, joyfully we approach the radiant warmth of your throne of grace. Our hearts burst with contentment because of thy love for us, thy love to us through our Savior, the man, the second Adam. We bask in the warmth of thy smile, thy good pleasure. For we remember that you love us, you affectionately love us because we have believed that you sent your divine son to become the man on sinners' behalf. Thy grace and mercy abounds to us, and we need it, for we are sinners. Indeed, we, we are the chief of sinners, for as the redeemed who know thy ways and thy law, we multiply our sins beyond those who do not know you. O oh God, have mercy on me for Christ's sake. Now, Father, your Holy Spirit breathed out this glorious gospel of John. And this day we find ourselves, Master, in the 16th chapter. Breathe upon us, O Spirit of God. Speak to us of redemption and sanctification that we might embrace and walk in obedience in the joy, the love of Jesus. Speak to us this day through thy holy word. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> because I know it will not stay in my mind, I'm like a sieve, I'll forget it. The other piece that was needed to be announced, I don't remember if you did or not, maybe you did, but I'll say it again. September 24th and 25th is the blessed event from Reigning Grace with Brent Campbell, one of their counselors. Friday night here at St. James, 7 to 9 o'clock, he will address the church as a whole. Saturday morning, 9 o'clock to 11 o'clock at their church office, he will address the men of the church. Saturday afternoon from 1 to 3 o'clock, he will address the teens of the church here at St. James. So mark your calendars. This is going to be very redemptive and salvific for not a few of us here. John 16. The master began his final discourse, you'll recall, speaking to troubled hearts. He said, let not your heart be troubled or... Literally, stop letting your heart be troubled. And dear child of God, do you sense his affection? He cares about your troubled heart because he loves you. He loves us. And thus speaking peace, Jesus began describing another helper, another of the same kind, paraclete, who would be with the disciples and hence the church forever. And this back in... John 14, starting with the 16th verse. And what he says about the third person, the spirit of truth, takes place amidst his statement, you recall, about being in the Father and the Father being in him, which reached profound beauty in chapter 14, verse 20. In that day you shall know 
that I am in my Father and you in me and I in you. Theologians struggle to describe this mutual inness by the Father and Son within the Godhead. And yet, though we do not comprehend it, God's children have been brought into this by being placed in Christ. What blessed sweetness it is to have one's heart entwined with Christ. Do we taste that? Do we know that? Sweet, continual presence of love, joy, comfort, guidance, protection. Blessed be God. Now it is no doubt because of the mental, conceptual difficulty of understanding what did the teacher mean? He is in us and we are in him. Christ in chapter 15 turns to this metaphor of the vine and particularly of his father, God the Father, as the vine dresser, the wise master gardener tending his vine and all we the adopted branches. Thus we apprehend that this in us which the believer has with Christ by imagery of the branch drawing its strength by being attached to the vine, then we understand that we must be pursuing Christ. I must be a man of the book, a woman of the book, a boy or girl of the book, going in and out of pasture if I will be someone in Christ, who Christ is in. And all of this with the understanding that as a branch connected to Jesus the vine, as a child of God who is in Christ, the divine intention is that we bear fruit to the glory of God. Pastoral reflection. How is your fruit? How is your fruit? Which of the fruits of the Spirit, Galatians 5, did you pray over and seek to manifest this week? Love? Joy? Father, fill my heart with joy. Help me to ponder the gifts that you've given me, the things you've surrounded me with in this life and the next. Help me to be a woman of joy. Joy, peace. Father, take my heart and give me peace in place of my anxiety. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, good. What fruit did you seek to develop and pray through this week? It's basic discipleship 101. But then, the second half of chapter 15, it's where we were last week. Bearing fruit to the glory of God means the world will hate you. The world will persecute that child of God. The world will hate and persecute the church, which is truly evidencing that it is Christ's bride. As one man said, Leon Morris, it is dangerous to have 
and to practice a higher standard than the standard of the world. Some of you are on a work site or in a job situation, and you know the truth of that, that if you hold to the standard that Christ would, they're not going to appreciate it. And there will be talk about you. You know that. Christ would have you rise to Christ's standard. Do not be afraid. The world will hate us, but greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. And as we saw last week, it's a simple, simple way to memorize much theology. Duties are ours. Events are the Lord's. Would you say that with me? Duties are ours. Events are the Lord's. Do my duty. Leave the event. Let what happen happens by God's providential hand. But I do my duty. And the Lord is in charge of events. There's a peace to that. Tremendous peace. Then in 16.1, Christ voices concern lest they stumble. He says, I've said all these things to you so that you won't stumble, fall down, lose faith, lose hope, lose your peace. And he returns even more explicitly to the hardships and conflicts that await them. And you saw it in verses 2, 3, and 4. He takes what he said in the second half of 15 and intensifies it. Much spice added in verses 2, 3, and 4. Listen to Calvin address the bigger picture which Reformed believers need to hear today. Quote, Let us remember that what he then said to the disciples is also spoken to us. And first we ought to understand that Christ does not send his followers into the field unarmed. And therefore that if any man fail in his warfare, his own indolence, laziness, sloth, too much screen time, not enough Bible time. Indolence, laziness, sloth is to blame. We ought not to wait till the struggle be actually commenced, but ought rather to endeavor to become well acquainted with these discourses of Christ. You catch that? Calvin says, you need to know the final discourses. You need to walk through them because they'll strengthen and undergird you for what is coming. We need to become well acquainted with these final discourses of Christ and to render them familiar to our minds, deeply imprinted upon our minds, end quote. John Calvin. Hmm. In verse 2 of chapter 16, as a church, as an individual, we ought not be dismayed by the perverse judgments of men. 
but ought to endure boldly the reproach of the cross of Christ. Calvin says, hence, too, we infer that the ministers of the gospel not only are ill-treated by the avowed enemies of the faith, but sometimes also endure the greatest reproaches from those who appear to belong to the church and who are even regarded as its pillars. Do your duty. Leave the events to the Lord. How do you know when somebody's doing that? Because when they do their duty and things go sour, they don't get angry. They don't start yelling. They don't start gossiping. They don't start slandering because they leave the event to the Lord. 16.3. Look at it. That's the intent of me saying that. Observe that the Father is known as he really is only, only through the revelation made in the Son. Now, listen carefully. You cannot approach deity bypassing Jesus. No one comes to the Father but through me. This means every other world religion is based exclusively on the writings of man and has no saving knowledge of God. To put your faith in Buddhism is to die in your sins and go to hell. Maybe you were peaceful in the process, but you still go to hell. To put your faith in Islam is to die in your sins and go to hell. To put your faith in Hinduism is to die in your sins and go to hell. The question is, who is Jesus to you? And who are you to Jesus? How would he describe your response and relationship and pursuit of him? Is he your God and your Lord? You see, the question is not, do other world religions teach some truth? Oh, they all do. They all teach some truth. The question is, do they offer the mediator? Do they offer the savior? Does Islam have somebody paying the price of their sins? No. Nor does Confucianism, Buddhism, Hinduism, Taoism, only the gospel of Jesus Christ presents a man sent from God who is God, who goes to the cross, takes the hit for our sins so that we can be forgiven. There's no salvation except through Jesus. Verse 4. Look at verse 4. First for the disciples and Thus, for us, observe the importance of meditating upon Jesus' words. The final discourse in preparation for growing darkness, hatred, even persecution. And why not us? Has that occurred to you? Why not us? In the history of the church, the bride of Christ has been persecuted more times than not. We in the West 
are the ones that have grown up and lived and our parents before us in this nice insulated bubble. But do you sense that the membrane of the bubble is thinner and thinner and weakening? Darkness is increasing. Globally, each month, over 300 Christians are killed for Christ's name. Globally, each month, over 200 churches and property of Christians is destroyed. You say, you don't know about any of that. Go to Voice of the Martyrs, voiceofthemartyrs.com. Start paying attention to what's happening to your brothers and sisters around the world. Things are not so safe and cozy and air-conditioned elsewhere. Why not us? Don't you sense it's getting darker? 16, 5 through 6. It is, and you see the heart of the master here. It's as if Jesus pauses, reflects, and says that because the disciples were not even thinking about where Jesus was going, they were consumed with losing him. Thus does self-interest blind us. It is as if Jesus had said, you know, as soon as you heard of my departure, you became alarmed. You did not even consider whither I'm going or for what purpose I go away. Your world is really small. It's all about you. You're not even asking the question, why are you leaving? Where are you going? What will be the implications for your agenda upon this earth? You're just thinking about yourself. 16.7 But I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away, because if I do not go away, the helper shall not come to you, but if I go, I will send him. Remember John 7? Here's John 7, the close of the chapter. Now on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who trusts into me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke of the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For the Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. In the decrees of God, clearly the cross was critical. Until satisfaction was made through the death of Christ on the cross, the Spirit would not be sent. But Christ Jesus has been raised and in Christ's glorious ascension and subsequent coronation and session at the right hand of God the Father, the Holy Spirit of God, who gloriously beautifies both creation and redemption, was sent to the church, and this in the face of growing hatred and darkness. Do you catch, are you catching the flow of Christ's thought? Don't let your hearts be troubled. You're going to be in me, and I'm going to be in you, and I'm in the Father. 
I want you to love one another. But you know, the world's going to hate you. The world's going to persecute you. And last week we saw the thrust of chapter 15. Do your duty. Leave the events to God. Accept the fact that you're going to be hated by the world. What's he doing here in 16? He's showing the positive remedy. He's showing the divine gift to the church who is going into the darkness, the Holy Spirit. Verse 8, observe the almighty power of the Spirit of God to convict the world. Here the Spirit of truth is described as performing a work in the world and that of conviction. It is the preacher, the churches, the Christians' duty to proclaim the gospel. It is the Spirit of God who brings conviction in the heart. It is the Spirit of God who opens blind eyes. It's not you, it's not me. It's the Spirit of God through the preached word, through the read word, through the heard word as it's read. Calvin, again, is rich here. She cleared her throat. Men, always look if your wife clears her throat. <laughs> At least I thought it was Tammy. Maybe it was somebody else. Calvin is rich here. There are two ways in which the Spirit convinces men by the preaching of the gospel. Oh, this is good. Listen to this. Very insightful. I first came to understand this in the prison. Some are moved in good earnest so as to bow down willingly and to assent willingly to the judgment by which they are condemned. Others, though they are convinced of guilt and cannot escape, do not sincerely yield or submit themselves to the authority and jurisdiction of the Holy Spirit. But on the contrary, being subdued, they groan inwardly, being overwhelmed with confusion, yet still cherish obstinacy in their heart. The Spirit's power to convict is seen on the day of Pentecost after the sermon. Now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said, Brethren, what shall we do? In Acts chapter 7, verse 54, Stephen's sermon, Stephen's martyr sermon. How do you know when you've really preached a good sermon? When they want to kill you. Then you know. Stephen's martyr sermon, verse 54, Acts 7. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the quick and gnashing their teeth at him, they cried out with a loud voice, covered their ears, and rushed upon him with one impulse. I hadn't thought of this, but do you see this? I, I trust you're looking at it. When they heard this, they were cut to the quick, gnashing their teeth, cried out, covered their ears. Why did they cover their ears? Because they had heard his voice of conviction in the heart. How are you going to stop that? All you got is cover your ears and kill that man. Hmm. 
Acts 13, 45 through 46, when the gospel is expanded to us, the Gentiles, Europe. But when the Jews saw the crowds, Acts 13, 45, when the Jews saw the crowd, they were filled with jealousy and began contradicting the things spoken by Paul, blaspheming. Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly and said, it was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you first, since you repudiate and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. The power of the word of God, even in written form, I had passed through, walked through protective custody, and there was in the first cell a particular man who was of a homosexual lifestyle. But the, you don't get in prison for that. You get in prison when you kill the other guy. I had distributed some material, uh, written scripture, gospel, and one week later I came through again. As soon as he saw me, he wheeled on his foot, went to the back of the cell, turned his back to that wall, and said, no bad news, no bad news. Bad news of conviction of sin, need for a savior, because you're lost without it. Six months later, he was released. About a year later, talking with a senior chaplain, the topic came up, and I said, whatever happened to that guy? I don't remember him. Well, he was discharged, went right back to Chicago, right back into his lifestyle, and was murdered one week later. No bad news. You see, you can come under conviction, and it can be for salvation, or it will be for damnation. Another, this time, hospice. I wasn't actually, this one preceded the prison. My hospice days were prior, from 03 to 06. And I was in a, I won't say where, but a very poor area. Grandma's in the bed, actively dying. She was dead within 24 hours. Nursing, social work, attempt made palliative care of her pain symptoms. But there was a grandson there, pants seated on his hips, way too low, no shirt, his girlfriend. The nurse asked for some privacy. I said, sure, let's, let's go back there. We went back into a room. And I opened up 2 Timothy 3. And you might glance at it. You'll see the text that I'll read just a portion of 2 Timothy 3. And I, I commented leading toward the Savior. Verse 2, for men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant revilers, 
disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, and it just goes on. I hadn't seen this happen before, but as I read each phrase, the man looked like somebody was slapping him. He would go. Every single phrase. Reflection afterward, I realized what the Spirit. What the Spirit of God was doing. Intention of his salvation. This man, too, saw him about six months later, see the area of town. Hospice goes everywhere. And he was back in the same old lifestyle. When the word of God goes forth, the spirit of God is attentive to it because he breathed it out. And so whether it's preached, read, aloud, or comes through the eye gate or the ear gate, the word of God has the spirit of God attached to it. And the spirit is bringing application, conviction, touching, hope, assurance, uh, knowledge of his touch and love. This is why reading scripture, hearing scripture, listening to expository preaching from scripture is so important. Not because of the man. It's because of the spirit who attends the preached word and when it's read. Speak, O Lord, thy servant, thy slave is listening. Verses 9 through 11. Get back to John. Verses 9 through 11. He says first concerning sin because they do not believe in me. In short, by these words, he condemns the corruption and depravity of human nature that we may not suppose that a single drop of integrity is in us without Christ. If you embrace that, how can you have pride? How can you walk in pride? How could somebody who understands the fallen nature of their heart, the desperate need of abounding grace because they are a chief of sinners, how could they walk in pride? Doctrine at this point, these are good verses to know and memorize. Jeremiah 17, 9. The heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick who can understand it. Hmm. Young boy, girl, young girls, boys, you need to understand that your own thoughts can be your heart lying to you, lying to you. That's why children are told, obey your parents. 
And that's why when children can read, they need to be in the Bible. Because if you don't understand that your heart will lie to you, you're going to be lost. Your heart is deceitful, Bible says. Isaiah 64, 10. But we are all as an unclean thing, and all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. Hmm. The remarkable thing about that passage is the absolute category in which it places us. We are all unclean. And I, okay, I'm, I'm unclean. I've got things in my mind and my heart and images I shouldn't have. Okay, I'm unclean. But then it says, all our righteousnesses. Now, what category is that? That's all the best of the best of the best, the things you're proud of. You're not going to brag in front of God about watching something on TV you shouldn't have. But you might say, I was in church. I read my Bible. I had John 3.16 memorized. All our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. This difference separates eternity in hell for the Pharisee from eternity in paradise for the publican. Did you catch that? The Pharisee didn't have a hope because he's focused on himself. The publican is looking at God and realizes, God, have mercy on me, the sinner. By my attitude about myself, I am either pleasing to God and looked favorably upon by God, or I have made myself a stench in his nostrils. Well, Jesus then, verse 10, says concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you no longer behold me. Observe that men will never surround Mount hunger and thirst after righteousness if they've not been convicted of sin as their condition, their nature. Believers cannot make progress in the gospel till they have first been humbled, and this cannot take place till they have acknowledged their sins. The gospel cannot be preached till it lead men from sin to righteousness, from death to life. That's John Calvin. Doctrine at this point. Notice how Christ here links righteousness with his ascension to the Father. I, I long pondered that in my Armenian days. I struggled over that, and I also struggled because I was teaching through Romans. And if you look at Romans, what Larry read, Romans, the fourth chapter, Paul makes an astounding and most puzzling statement. The end of this chapter on faith, Romans 4, 25, speaking of Christ, it says, He who was delivered up because of our transgressions and was raised because of our justification. So the delivering of, the being placed upon the cross for our transgressions, I understood that. Armenianism teaches that real well. 
I understood he, our sins were placed on Christ at the cross to deliver it up for our transgressions. But it was being raised because of our justification. Well, guess what? The Greek word that gets translated righteousness and justification is the same one word. The same word that is translated righteousness is also translated justification. Paul theologizes in Romans 4 that his resurrection was peculiarly linked to our righteousness from him. And Jesus, in a more enigmatic way, in John 16.10, says concerning righteousness, because I go to the ascension. I go to the Father, and you no longer see me. Calvin, next to the conviction of sin, this is the second step, that the Spirit should convince the world what true righteousness is, namely, that Christ, by his ascension, has established the kingdom of life and now sits at the right hand of the Father to confirm true righteousness. This helps me understand 2 Peter 3.13. You'll know it, but according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth. Say it with me in which righteousness dwells. Ah. Am I man, am I woman, hungering and thirsting for righteousness? Jesus says, these are the blessed ones. Has the thought come through my mind? Is the good shepherd leading me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake? That's Psalm 23. He leads me in paths of this is a significant thought, theme to God. But then 1 Corinthians 1.30, but by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. John Bunyan, author of Pilgrim's Progress, also wrote, uh, prior to Pilgrim's Progress, his autobiography titled Abounding Grace to the Chief of Sinners. Listen to his words. One day as I was passing into the field, suddenly this sentence fell upon my soul. Thy righteousness is in heaven. And I thought that I could see Jesus Christ at God's right hand. Yes, there indeed was my righteousness. So that wherever I was or whatever I was doing, God could not say about me that I did not have righteousness. For it was standing right there beside him. I also saw that it was not my good feelings that made my righteousness better and that my bad feelings did not make my righteousness worse. For my righteousness was Jesus Christ himself, the same yesterday, today, and forever. Now indeed the chains fell off my legs, 
and I was loosened from my afflictions and irons. My temptations fled away from me so that from that time forward those condemning dreadful passages of Scripture terrified me no more. Now I went home rejoicing because of the grace and love of God and went to my Bible to look up where the verse was found that said, Thy righteousness is in heaven, but I could not find it. Bunyan didn't have Google. He just had a Bible. I couldn't find it. And so my heart began to sink again until suddenly there came to my remembrance 1 Corinthians 1.30 Who of God Christ is made unto us righteousness. And from this I saw that the other sentence was true. I lived here sweetly at peace with God through Christ for a long time. There was nothing but Christ before my eyes. I was not thinking of him now, only concerning his blood, his burial, his resurrection, but I was thinking of Christ himself and that he sat there of the right hand of God in heaven. Blessed be God that our righteousness is in heaven and that should comfort Real quickly, he closes, Christ closes and develops concerning judgment. Refers to the death, defeat rather, of Satan on the cross. John will, in 1 John 3, 8, tell us that the Son of God appeared for this purpose to destroy the works of the devil. John 12, Christ had said, now judgment is upon this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. The same apostle in Revelation 12 refers to the dragon, the devil, Satan, being thrown down to the earth. And then now the salvation and power and kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down, he who accuses them before our God day and night. I sprinkled doctrine throughout. Let's go right to application. First, bow daily before thy sovereign, who sits resplendent in glory at the Father's right hand, Worship him, adore him, love him. Reverence him whose hands and feet and sides still bear the scars of the wounds taken on my behalf. He is thy righteousness who is in heaven. Who would not love him? Second, in this day of Christ's sovereign session, from the throne of God. Conduct thyself, sir, with decorum. Young man, lady, young girl. For it is his will that we would know how one ought to conduct him or herself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. Our king sits in session. All rise 
is the concept of respect. Third, cultivate warmth of loving relationship with the Spirit of God, who is the Spirit of Truth. Grieve him not through uncharitable words, uncharitable thoughts or deeds. Grieve him not through your viewing habits. Cultivate his favor and blessed presence, sanctifying you as he illumines the pages of scripture into which you are going in and out daily. Fourth, and this particularly for those like last week who are seeking to tend others. In all your dealings redemptively, and efforts at sanctification. What parent isn't focused on the sanctification of their children? Remember, duties are ours. Events are the Lord's. Do thy duty and let his sovereignty still thy heart and thy thoughts. Whether it's family members students in a catechism, Sunday school, other class, members of a fellowship group, hurting persons that you tend. Remember, it is the spirit of truth's role to convict, to persuade, to humble, to regenerate, to bring someone to the end of themselves. Duties are ours. Events are the Lord's. And he's gifted us with his Holy Spirit. Let us pray. Blessed are you, our Father in heaven. Thank you for your affection. Thank you for your love. Thank you for sending your Son to take the hit to die for us, sinners, chief of sinners, yet saved by your abounding grace. Thank you that when you return to the Father, that you, Father and Son, sent your Spirit to the church so that as we engage those in darkness, we are not without protection, without a tool. It's, you're not under our thumb, but you, Holy Spirit, move through what we do. Now the duty is ours, but the event, the outcome is yours. We give it to you. We will be at peace. We will be in harmony with you because we love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.